Uh, we are going through Ecclesiastes, kind of thematically through Ecclesiastes. Uh, last week we talked about work, the meaningless of work under the sun. Uh, we talked about how work is a stressor and how in Christ work is worship. Uh, work is meaningless if all, all it amounts to is working, earning, even enjoying to an extent, but uh, then having to just pass on whatever we've earned or accomplished uh, because we can't take it with us into the, the afterlife. Uh, Solomon was just really upset at the idea of how many generations will it take for everything I've earned to go to uh, someone who's foolish and would squander it. Um, and just the idea that the next person to receive it didn't work to achieve it or earn it to begin with. Um, Work stresses us out, we said, because uh, we search for significance in it and can't find significance in work in itself. Uh, It takes up so much of our time, our energy, our emotions. Um, But in Christ, work is worship. God has given us a mission in Christ, and so when we work in light of our mission for Christ, uh, it brings meaning to all these things. Uh, And work is not a curse. This wasn't one of our points, but something we talked about last week, that work is part of, um, will be part of the new creation. Work was part of life before the fall. Um, Work is something that God has built for us to to do, to to take part in. And so um, it should be viewed as work in light of uh, perfection, right? In, in, In light of what God has designed, how do we view work? And so... Uh, regardless of what our job might be, we're on mission for God uh, while we're at work, wherever we find ourselves. Today we turn to pleasure. Uh, It's kind of a collection of different pursuits that Solomon uh, is going to list in chapter 2 that all kind of amount to seeking uh, enjoyment or pleasure or fulfillment uh, in kind of different avenues. And so um, a lot of things fall under that category. Uh, So let's read in Ecclesiastes um, 2, 1 through 11. Uh, I'll read and you can listen. The words will be on the screen or in the Bible if you have one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, one of the first things we see, uh, Solomon's very consistent in Ecclesiastes, is that pleasure is vanity. So here we are with no surprise, point number one. Pleasure is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Solomon 
in the course of his writing, he kind of goes from self-control in a sense in chapter 1 when he talks about wisdom and applying all this great wisdom that he has to kind of reckless abandon in chapter 2, this other end of the spectrum. He keeps mentioning that his wisdom stayed with him. Um, I don't know if that just means like I, I kind of held it at bay or I don't know why he, you know, exactly why he would mention that throughout this uh, chapter 2. But ver- chapter 1 is I, I applied wisdom, I, I sought meaning in wisdom and being wise and uh, kind of that restraint of doing things that way they ought to be. Um, apart from God, but still the way that things should function, just kind of socially and um, that, that kind of thinking. And then chapter two, just self-indulgent, right? No holds barred, reckless abandon, uh, whatever you enjoy, uh, no holding back. He says to himself, come now, enjoy yourself. He says later, he kept his heart from nothing that it desired. He lists some of the things that he sought pleasure in, wine, accomplishments, beauty, wealth, power, possessions, sex, and you can get a sense of it from his descriptions, but it wasn't like Solomon was a dabbler, right? It wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to kind of do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Like, he's all in on whatever he does. There's no, like, halfway with Solomon. He had all the possessions or resources he needed, right, to pursue things uh, all in, and so he did. He had unlimited resources, and then if he ran out for, for some reason, he had the wisdom to kind of gain more resources, you know, to pursue that even further if he wanted to. If you've ever witnessed someone uh, going or experienced going hard after something, uh, some earthly pleasure, just know that Solomon was more than capable of going big instead of going home, right, when it came to pursuing anything. And just as we read in chapter 1 that there's nothing new under the sun, we can see that the same things we seek fulfillment in today are the same things Solomon and the rest of the world were pursuing thousands of years ago in order to find satisfaction. It's strange a little bit that pursuing the things that make us happy leaves us unfulfilled, but they do. And we have to wonder why uh, we have these desires in us um, that lead to things that don't fulfill us. Um, why do we have these longings to begin with if they can't be satisfied? Uh, and we'll kind of get there towards the end of the message. But uh, the fact that they don't satisfy us is the reason that they're meaningless. If all we can muster is temporary satisfaction and then a desire for more, then what's the point? We either convince ourselves that we always need more, or sometimes we'll convince ourselves that the pursuit uh, was, there was no pleasure in the pursuit to begin with, like it was just futile um, because it was so unfulfilling. And really, uh, this isn't just a, a mental uh, act of the will when we say something was uh, enjoyable or not enjoyable or when we say, I, I want more of that. We're not simply deciding that we need more of something. Uh, this is kind of a physiological thing that occurs, right? It's in the way that God has designed human beings to operate. Our brains, our body chemistry, they're all involved in the process of interpreting pleasure and becoming dependent on certain feelings. There's an addiction aspect to this, and not just with sex and drugs and alcohol. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to eat just one potato chip, right? Eating salty foods releases dopamine, which communicates pleasure to our brains. Other foods contain tryptophan, which is broken down to make serotonin, which communicates happiness. 
And these are just a couple of examples of how food is connected to the idea of fulfillment or pleasure. Studies have shown that even appreciating beautiful art releases dopamine and can raise serotonin levels. It's the same with physical touch and affection. Recognition and fame are addictive in the exact same ways. Consider the intense effects that social media has had on mental health since it came on the scene. Why is it so powerful? Because when a person, this is, research has shown this, because when a person posts a picture online and gets positive social feedback, it stimulates the brain to release dopamine, creating a dependence on these reactions. And you can tell the opposite would also happen, right? If there's not that trigger, if there's not that release of dopamine, then there's this unfulfillment, this sadness. Technology hasn't created a new problem here with fame. It's just kind of microwave the process into a faster, more intense process. So at the end of the day, all of these really different pursuits, right? We went from, uh, I mentioned just briefly, sex, drugs, alcohol, food, appreciating beautiful art, physical touch, affection, recognition, and fame. They seem totally different, right? Such a wide range of things we would pursue fulfillment in. Really, all of them are just manipulating the chemical reactions in our brain for the same few results, happiness, um, pleasure, fulfillment. And they all leave us empty and needing and wanting more. Our bodies have been designed to react to worldly enjoyment and beauty. So we essentially train ourselves or sometimes enslave ourselves to revisit these things, to seek out satisfaction. We keep going back to those things because our brains say that's, that's what we want. That's where we get that release, right? That, that dopamine or that hit, that whatever that is, we want that. And when they don't satisfy because we desire more or more intensity from them, things escalate and become really destructive. Our relationships with these often good gifts become perverted and unhealthy. It's even rewiring our brains. Studies have shown that that's how addiction actually occurs. It's not just uh, a trigger-release reaction that as you continue to trigger that and release that and kind of short-circuit the way that it's intended to, to be approached or thought about, um, that it rewires the pathways of how your brain desires and thinks about things. And so we're creating new pathways in our brains. We're rewiring our brains and not processing pleasure in the way that God designed. That's why it's so difficult to break free from some of these things. If our brains and body natural desires weren't enough, like weren't strong enough, we rewire and short-circuit them to ways that they weren't intended, and so it's so difficult to break free from some of these things. Ultimately, though, there is no true or lasting satisfaction in these things because our worldly desires will pass away. So pleasure under the sun is meaningless. If pleasure is the end and not the means to something above the sun, it's meaningless. Solomon mentions great possessions, treasure, the delight of the sons of man, whatever his eyes desired, and pleasure in his toil. Now listen again to our call to worship, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in John, he says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Solomon listed great possessions, treasure, the delight of the sons of man, whatever his eyes desired, and pleasure in his toil. This New Testament description in 1 John, it covers the same pursuits of Solomon in the Old Testament. And many commentators link them also to Eve back in the Garden of Eden when she saw that, quote, the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It's still the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same worldly desires since the beginning. Again, there's a myriad amount of things that fall under this umbrella, but really it's these three simple base desires in the Garden of Eden with Solomon, written to us by John, and still today. I believe that the reason that worldly desires will pass away is because ourselves and this world will pass away. Ourselves will pass away in regard to our flesh. And pleasure under the sun is focused on ourselves. This is point number two. Pleasure is self-centered. If you look at Ecclesiastes 2, it is full of the word I. Solomon is really emphasizing how focused on himself this pursuit of pleasure was. It's all about what he wanted, what he desired, what he accomplished, what he collected in excess unto himself. Even these like gardens and for, things that you would think, oh, that's for others to know. He said that he planted gardens for himself. He planted for himself. Verse 9 and following maintains the same theme. I became great. Whatever my eyes desired, my heart found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward. It's very obvious how selfish and self-seeking the type of pleasure that Solomon is trying to find meaning is. When we idolize our own pleasure, it's obviously a self-centered pursuit. We're not trying to please or comfort or encourage anyone else in this. We are only seeking to satisfy ourselves, to gratify our flesh. And we're always convinced that we can often, that we can, and often convinced that we should, right? That we can get more, we can be satisfied, uh, we should pursue this, it will fulfill me. This time it will stick, this time, I promise. Like we just convince, we lie to ourselves. And there's so many things in the world today that kind of point us to this self-gratification or uh, independence and, and we don't need help from anyone, like, right? It's, it's all cutting us off from the idea, not just from help from others, but definitely from the idea of we need help outside of ourselves from a, a higher power. There's self-help, self-care, self-serve, self-love. These are all dangerous gateways to extreme self-centeredness not condemning any of those on their own or in the right perspective. But again, it can lead us to this idea of it's all up to me to make myself happy. And if I'm not happy, then I need to fix something, but I can do it. And if we're so focused and hung up on ourselves, then we're not thinking of others, and we're certainly not thinking about God. So how does God want us to live? Instead of that way, how does God want us to live? First, to love God above all, right? In Galatians, we read that the spirit and the flesh are at war. 
the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit of God. And so this flesh within us that we're born with, which is so natural to us, it is always bent towards self. It's always looking out for ourselves, which seems like a good thing, but it's not a good thing. Because in and of ourselves, we are not looking to worship God. We're looking to worship ourselves. And so the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. The flesh wants to pursue its own desires, not what the spirit desires. So God wants us to follow the spirit, not our flesh. He says if we will follow the spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So number one, we should follow the spirit. Number two, we should love others over ourselves. Philippians 2.3 says, count others more significant than ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10.24 says to seek the good of our neighbors. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love does not insist on its own way. The second greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love our neighbors as ourselves. See, the Christian life is marked by selflessness and devotion to God. Christian life is not marked by self-seeking, self-gratifying, seeking pleasure as uh, an end instead of a means to something greater. The Christian life is marked by devotion to God and selflessness. Because apart from Christ, again, life is marked by devotion to self. This shouldn't come as a surprise that the Christian life is so uh, marked or characterized by selflessness seen as trusting in Christ to begin with, becoming a Christian, following Jesus, is a denying of self initially at salvation and continually as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God. This is our third point. We, in Christ, we die to ourself. In Christ, we die to self. In The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not a very glorious invitation, right? Unless we consider what he is offering us instead of ourselves and our pursuits. I think one of the most essential truths the world has stripped from Christianity is that to become a Christian, a real, true, born-again believer, an eternal follower of Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit, to be born again and receive eternal life, you must come to the end of yourself. It's an entirely self-denying process that occurs when we surrender our lives to Jesus. Because what we're saying when we trust our lives to Jesus is, one, I'm a sinner, right? We talk about this every week, our need for God's grace. And so there's this self-denial, this uh, I'm calling out for something out. It's not self-help because we can't help ourselves. That's what we're acknowledging when we come to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I have nothing of value or merit, no righteousness of my own. I can't contribute anything to my salvation. Uh, and so I'm in great need of something outside of myself to save me. I need someone else to do this because I can't. It's a selflessness. I need a savior. I have no other option. And I'm truly convinced that Jesus is my only hope in life and death. And number two, not just that, number two, we're saying, Jesus, because I'm surrendering my life to you, I'm surrendering the illusion of control over my life to you and acknowledging that you are the eternal boss of my life. So there's a selflessness, a self-denying in the sense of I have nothing to save myself and so I need Jesus to come and save me. And not just to save me, but to lead me, right? 
to live through me because I, I have, I, if I'm in charge, if you save me from um, eternal damnation and forgive my sins and yet then give me back the reins to my life to live it out as I want to, it's going to be about me. My flesh will gratify itself. It will seek what's good for itself, not putting Christ first. And so in this, we believe by faith, we're saved by grace, we surrender ourselves, denying ourselves, even dying to ourselves. So this makes why we say Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord. Saves us from our sins, saves us from that eternal punishment, saves us from eternal torment, but he saves us also as Lord of our lives. He is in charge. He's in control. We submit and surrender all of our plans, our hopes, our dreams, whatever, to him. It's a denying of self to come to Christ at all. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Again, this idea of dying to self that we might live in Christ. It's no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then I'm going to read like half of Romans 6. I I contemplated reading the whole chapter. It's so good. Um, But listen to Paul writing here about being dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is the power of Jesus in us to overcome sin and self, a flesh that's so bent on self-gratification. Romans 6, starting in chapter 1. What shall we say then? Or will you continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace." So what are we to do then with this treatise about dying to self and the fact that God has wired us to experience pleasure? What point does pleasure play in our lives if it doesn't fulfill us and life in Christ is about self-denial? Now, there are some throughout history who have taken this to, to extreme lengths, right? To not just deny themselves any earthly pleasure, but to punish themselves at the thought of earthly pleasure, or to uh, just kind of go to the other end of the spectrum and to say, well, if to enjoy the things of the world is against what God wants, then I must uh, just punish myself and suffer intentionally and harm myself for the Lord. That's not what he intends at all. 
What it means is that Christ and eternity become the lenses through which we view pleasure. Pleasure must have been given to us, not to test us, but to point us to a good God who delights in us, but wants us ultimately to delight in him. It's another occasion for the gifts to point us to the giver, for the pleasures of the world to be enjoyed within the parameters that God has given us, and when they fall short, to remind us that ultimate and eternal joy are found in Christ himself, not in his gifts towards us. If the gifts could satisfy us apart from Christ himself, then he wouldn't need, be needed in heaven, right? We wouldn't need his presence to be with us. We would just need his gifts. He could just set us up with all the desires of our hearts, the desires of the world, and just leave us to enjoy them. But our deepest need is not to experience fleeting pleasure, as powerful as they might be, but to be in eternal fellowship with the God of the universe. So pleasure, then, is meant to, again, give us a glimpse, give us a taste, to point us to what is this great gift? Who would, who would love me in such a way that they would allow me to enjoy something like this? It is to lift our eyes, our sight, our gaze above the sun. That's what Solomon's doing throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So for him to say, I pursued pleasure in all of these things under the sun, but in and of themselves, if that's the end and not a means, it's meaningless. But what he doesn't spell out for us, but we can see throughout the rest of Scripture, is that we have these good gifts to enjoy them in a framework that God has given us so that we can celebrate our God who's in heaven. And then think about, try to imagine how much more enjoyable it's going to be in heaven that the extreme pleasures of this world fall short of fellowship with God for eternity. I can't even imagine to think that that we love the things of this world so much because they're so enjoyable, they are so pleasurable. But God is saying, I have greater for you in eternity. I cannot imagine. Our downfall, though, is when we see that pleasure and say, that's it, that's it, when there's so much greater in store for us. Until Jesus is our deepest desire, we will be left wanting by the desires of the world. Only in Christ does pleasure find its true meaning. And you can only be in Christ when you deny yourself, come to the end of yourself, and look to him above the sun. Let's pray. God, forgive us. Forgive me for seeking fulfillment in the pleasures of this world, for elevating the good gifts that you allow us to experience as if they are the final destination, as if they are the ultimate treasure. Forgive us, Lord, for, for settling, for settling for such mild entertainment, such fleeting happiness. God, help us to, to, to look, to meditate on, to imagine, to trust in by faith the pleasure of being in your presence for all eternity. 
Lord, may the, may the things of this world, as we used to sing, grow strangely dim in comparison to you. May the good gifts and pleasures of this world, God, and, and according to the, the parameters you've given us for living, may they point us to you, to satisfaction in you. God, help us where, where we haven't just uh, dabbled. Help us where we've rewired our, our brains and, and, are, and are stuck, almost enslaved to these things where we, we think if we go back to this for that, that hit, that, that release, that chemical reaction in our brain, God, that, God, that you, would, you would break that cycle in us. God, that we would reorient our hearts and our minds to desire things above That we wouldn't just trade one earthly pleasure for another, but that we would surrender all of them. Trade all of them in for devotion to you. As Paul would write, that he considers it all rubbish, detestable garbage in comparison to knowing you. God, we thank you that you're not a God who wants us to, to hate life or to never be happy, but you are a God who wants our full devotion. You are a God who wants us to worship you, desire you above all else. And in light of that devotion, in light of that worship, you've given us great things to enjoy in the pleasures of this world. God, may we be a people, a church that is, that is marked by that. That we are marked by joy and, and happiness and, and having fun. But God, it's because you are the joy of our hearts and you are the highest devotion of our minds. We thank you, God, because you are good. We thank you because you are work for our good. We ask God that you would just uh, help us to follow hard after you and not the things of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.